This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Omo, the romance and reality of storytelling. I'm Rosie DeLoach, and today I am with Jerry Lynn. Hi, Jerry. Hey, Rosie. How you doing? I'm good. Jerry, I really feel like we're gelling today. Wow. Yeah, because today we're talking about glue. And not, not just any glue, the illustrious hide glue of time, immemorial the benchmark for bench monkeys all across the planet who call themselves luthiers. Jerry, how much glue are you picking off your fingers right now? Well, no high glue, but if the truth be told, there's some CA glue on there. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, before we begin, we have a little bit of a disclaimer today. Some of today's topic is going to include some bits of subject material that may some listeners may find disturbing. So... Bear that in mind when listening uh, to all our vegetarian and vegan friends out there that, you know, it's high glue is still the best thing we got. And we'll yeah. hopefully get into that a little bit later. And and to all my vegetarian friends out there, high five. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who are not in the field, the glue we used is called hide glue. And it comes from exactly where you would think it does. It's one of the oldest kinds of glue. That's right. And so for today, for my research, most of the information today comes from a book called Unbelievably High Glue, Historical and Practical Applications by Stephen A. Shepard. And I have to tell you, when I picked up that glue book, I couldn't put it down. <laughs> I expect this sort of thing from Jacoby, not from you. <laughs> Uh, we speculate that high glue was discovered around a campfire as a sticky substance was discovered after boiling hides, hence the name, uh, hooves and tendons of animals. We find evidence of use of high glue as early as 30,000 years ago as it was used to help secure cave paintings, which is so stinking cool. You know what? You know what I like about this is that cave paintings must have gone back way further than this. It just, this is how they figured out how to make it stick. So it makes me really happy. That was not a joke. That was, that was Are you not sure it wasn't a joke? Yeah. It was accidental. So the earliest surviving mention of how to make high glue appears from around 2000 BC. Following that, we have records of the Romans and Greeks using high glue to secure mosaics and furniture. The stuff was also favored in war as well. Genghis Khan's warriors in the 13th century used high glue to laminate their famous arrows that allegedly shot over 500 yards. Yes, and apparently high glue was forgotten in Europe in the Dark Ages, which this confused me for a hot minute. Is that um, a and pun? again, <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and again, this is like what I'm reading from this book. Um, so I I was confused because how could a technology like this be forgotten with most people living in an agrarian lifestyle next to animals. So if I'm speculating and maybe our guest can provide clarity with his wisdom and comes on later, um, speculating two things are possible. Uh, animal glues were probably still made, but the specific knowledge of making this high performance glue from hide 
was lost to the European area. And maybe number two, this kind of glue is probably reserved for items of high craft, not daily living, like building houses and basic household furniture. But what do I know? I just read a book. <laughs> it could also so, be the, the, the dark ages. You know, we, yeah. we don't necessarily think of them as being times when there was no knowledge. It just the knowledge wasn't necessarily as widely spread yeah, as it was absolutely. in times previous and times past. So who knows? Yeah. So if we skip forward to an Italian publication from the 1400s, hide glue is being mentioned once again in the assembly of fine English furniture. From there, it seems hide was known widely enough that it was a natural choice for instrument makers, and we've been sticking to it ever since. <laughs> so uh, what's the stuff really made of? Is it, re it really is made of the skin of animals, not bones, hooves, or joints, but skin. Its primary ingredient is collagen, the same supplements that many women take for healthy-looking skin, and probably Chris Jacoby. Collagen has two parts, a long chondrin protein that makes it stiff and an elastic gluten protein that makes it stick to the chondrin. So how's it made? Now our host will fill in, fill us in on his experience making his own hide glue. But just as a brief overview, according to this book, hide skins are, okay, trigger warning, hide skins are cooked for hours uh, around 160 degrees until the vat of hides stops foaming. So it's skimmed over and over again until the foam made of impurities like hair stop rising to the top. Then just like we do in our tiny jars, the makers let the vat cool. And if it's made right, the leftover substance turns into a gel. Uh, then they add more water and do the same thing several times over. When it's time to pull the glue from this vat, they do a series of extractions. The higher bond stuff comes out first, and then the lower bond stuff comes out toward the end. So here's the thing about the extraction. You might think that a darker color glue is going to be a stronger glue, but the first extraction, the one with the higher gram weight, is actually the lightest in color. It's the weaker stuff that's more yellow. There you go. That's everything you needed to know about hide glue. We've got an ad break coming up. And after that, Michael Doran, your hide is ours. Next time you're traveling through the Twin Cities, you'd be as dull as a used fingerboard plane to miss visiting House of Note. Located in St. Louis Park, you'll find the people of House of Note taking care of players at every level, from the beginner student to the Minnesota orchestra performer. House of Note has built their reputation over the years on being kind, fair, and honest. Pop in and you're likely to find Jeff picking out hairs for a bow rehair, while nearby Lyle is getting the symmetry perfect on a cello neck set. You might even find Aaron carving a stellar bridge for a new violin setup, while Nick perfects the perfect fit of a sound post patch. And Ty is putting the final polish on a new set of pegs that fit just so. If you can't visit these guys in person, check out houseofnote.com where you can commission a purple electric violin made by Lyle and other things like their wide selection of bows and showroom instruments or sign up for a rental instrument online. House of Note. By musicians, for musicians. Hey, just a quick reminder that you can take your luthiery skills to the next level with a class from Learning Trade Secrets. The Moore family is back offering classes out of Ashland, Ohio, 
and spots for bow rehairing and maintenance, as well as basic bow repair, are already full. But there's still a few spots left for Tom Crowen's workshop on advanced violin setup. If you really want to nail your soundpost location and fit, if you want to cut a more refined bridge, if you want to mellow out a bright violin by knowing the rocking frequency of your bridge, Tom's going to show you how to do this. Now, this is a class I attended in 2019, and I use these skills at my workbench almost every day. Every good violin shop deserves to have someone who really understands a great setup. Refine and elevate your setup game this May 15th through May 20th at Learning Trade Secrets. Apply today at learningtradesecrets.com. Guys, welcome back. We have got with us today, Michael Doran. Hello. Hello. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) We're glad to have you on OMO. Uh, Michael is an award-winning maker out of Duval, Washington in the Seattle area. His, His awards include a silver and gold medal from the Violin Society of America for his cellos. And Jerry, you told me this guy is the Swiss watchmaker of luthiers because of the precision of his craft. Well, I think welcome, he is. Welcome. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I get to see a lot of, well, mostly I work on a lot of really old instruments, but occasionally I'm fortunate enough to work on uh, some of the, the cream of the crop of today's modern makers. And sometimes I, I get those instruments and I'm just like, eh. <laughs> but not Michael's. Michael's, the, the measurements are, are always great he does ingenious things like uh uh putting a a a a, i don't know what you'd call this a pre-bushing in the end block where the end pin goes which is going to help keep uh wear down in that area uh Mm -hmm. everything's just super well thought out so that's why i i I described him to you as that well, thank you so much. You're too kind, but uh, but you know it's uh, it's it's why we do what we do, isn't it? To to make beautiful things that hopefully somebody will love. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. I just say with enough caffeine and anger, all things are possible. But whatever works for you <laughs> doesn't <help>. doesn't hurt. <laughs> so, I, firstly, I just want to say thanks to you two and uh, and Jacoby as well for for making this podcast because I really think you know this last couple of years it's been important for us to stick together and and the bonds we've formed you know really really <gasps> nice. join us together and I'm just hoping to 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 you know horse around a little bit with you and uh, and talk a little bit about glue. <laughs> bravo bravo strong entrance well well done sir so tell us about your well i first of all i was blown away uh i think it was last week when we were talking about this episode and you told me that you and of course it would be you that has made your own hide glue (laughs) yeah so uh you know i uh I went to an alternative high school. Um, it was a nature-based high school, so we spent uh, most of the week outside learning about nature and uh, tracking animals, making fire without matches, and other primitive sorts of skills and stuff like that. So um, um, that's actually how I got my start uh, woodworking: is making archery bows, um, and uh, and that was that was fun. Um, Anyway, we used to go every year to Rabbit Sticks Rendezvous, which is this like primitive skill gathering in Eastern Washington that was just tons of fun. And they have um, all different, you know, classes you can take, flint napping or uh, hide tanning. And um, one of the classes I took when I was there was was making hide glue. Um, 
I think uh, you talked, Jerry, about the the sinew backing of some of the um, some of the Asian bows, and uh, I, I always wanted to try that. So the um, way you do that is to glue it down with hide glue because sinew sticks the best with hide glue. So um, we made some hide glue. It was pretty uh, pretty primitive, and I think certainly by our standards, um, it wasn't great glue or anything. But um, but it was interesting. Um, I mean, it's, it's dead simple. Like it's, it's about as easy as it gets. Really the hard part is, um, isolating the hide and just getting the collagen. The more time you spend like, um, getting rid of the hair and the epidermis and the fat and the oils and stuff till you just have literally the raw hide, um, where you go from like raw hide straight from the animal to raw hide, which is just basically the collagen. Then, um, you just cook it. Um, you cut it in a, cut it into little pieces and cook it. Um, commercially, what they do mm-hmm. now is they lime the hides because um, lime is a really alkaline substance and it breaks down all those fats and oils and things. I think they'll actually soak them for like 60 to 90 days um, when they make glue in the lime solution. Then you have to do all this stuff to wash it and clean it out afterwards. But um, but yeah, what, what we basically did was just mechanical removal. We had some hide scraps that the instructor provided that were, you know, from his hide tanning exploits, right? And uh, and we just scraped off the hair and the, and the fat and the flesh as best we can. And then you just cut them into little pieces and cook it. And then, I mean, it's amazing. Like glue just like comes out. And um, you... you um, Ideally, you would control the temperature, um, but we we didn't. We just had it in a big pot over the fire and cooked it for. I feel mm. like we cooked it for like most of the day. It was certainly hours, and then we um, let it cool overnight because this is the the summer basically. So it's not not super cold at night, and um, and then as it gelled, um, we'd cut it up into little strips and then dry it further the next day, and you'd get something that looks a whole lot like the high glue. Um, you know we as violin makers are, are used to. Um, I remember I, I took it home and I, I reconstituted it and I used it to make some uh, sinew-backed bows. And then I had extra that I, I didn't know what to do with. So I remember I stuck it in my mom's freezer and um, I don't think it's still there. I hope it's not still there. Uh, it smelled terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so is this why you're still stuck on the subject? Pretty much, yes. Oh. And, and, yeah, exactly. Waka, waka, waka. So uh, we mentioned that this this glue has been with us forever and ever. Uh, it is the standard when you're assembling violins and their joints and their seams. Why haven't we moved to a more modern glue? I think the biggest reason is um, is reversibility. There's nothing else. There's no other modern glue that can... Um, be undone as easily away as, as hide glue can. I don't even know if there's many glues that can be reversed all that, all that readily. Um, and that is just key for our purposes is to get it to, um, to stick when we want it to stick and then not stick when we want it to not stick. I agree. And if I could add something as a vegetarian, um, I, I would argue in favor of using this glue because of its sustainability when Mm -hmm. you, you have it use it lasting so long, uh, that it it just seems like the the best option for the planet, honestly, despite where it came from, for for what we're using it for. Yeah. So a conversation that I know you and I have had, and I have my own views on this, and it seems like 
everybody around has has different different opinions about Graham's strength. So what do those numbers mean? And what does it really mean to us? Yeah, totally. So um, I knew a little bit about this, but I, I, I've done some more research uh, since, since we talked, Jerry, and um, I think it's super fascinating. So like the, the collagen protein molecule um, is kind of like a, a squiggly like piece of ramen noodles, right? That, that they all are, are just very, very wiggly and bent and they, and they like to stick to each other. And the, the length of those molecules sort of, um, uh, is a factor in how sticky the glue is. Um, and so they do this, this test, um, which is called bloom strength. It was made by this guy, um, what was his name? Oscar Bloom. And they take a, a gelled solution of hide glue and they force a piston of a certain size down into it a certain distance. And the weight that it takes to do that is called the, the bloom strength or the gram strength, right? That's why you hear like 192, 251, 357, whatever it is. Um, hide glue sort of comes in strengths anywhere from 50 to 515. Um, and that's, uh, it tells you something about how the glue works. It's to measure the density of those molecules. Um, it doesn't directly measure the length of each one of those molecules, right? But you can kind of infer that if it's more dense, the molecules are longer. Um, and, and this is what I just thought was fascinating is that the hide glue molecules like to stick to each other in two ways. Um, they stick together by, uh, they stick together with a electrochemical electrochemical charge. That's right. That's Ooh. what gets them to gel, right? That's that initial sort of like it goes from uh, liquid to a semi-solid. Um, and the bigger molecules have more charge and they have more opportunities to stick to each other. So that's why higher gram strength hide glues with more molecular weight and a greater bloom strength, why they have less working time. It's because they like to gel up quickly and stick to each other. The second part of hide glue's drying process is evaporation. So, and that takes between, you know, 12 and 24 hours. I mean, compared to that gelling that happens in what, 30 seconds, 15 seconds? seconds? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, also the, the higher uh, gram strength glues with longer molecular chains, they gel at a higher temperature. So like when you go down from, you know, say 140, 145, what your glue temperature is down to like, you know, 90 or a hundred, the, the higher gram strength glues are going to gel at a higher temperature. So that's also why it feels like they have less working time, why they do have less working time. Right. Um, so those two factors are, um, are what, gets the, uh, that's why the glue has a different feel. And so when they, when they do sort of successive, um, extractions of the glue, the first extraction has the longest molecules and the second extraction has slightly shorter molecules and so on and so on and so on. And, um, typically hide glue that we use is somewhere between like, like 192 and 315. Yeah. When I was at school, we had, um, monocle glue which was glue sourced by Bill Monocle that he bought a huge amount of and, he, and he, he passed it out. He sold it to lots of people and it was about 315 gram strength. And I just remember the working time being like nothing. Like you yeah. look at the thing on your brush and it's already gelled. And, um, 
<laughs> that was great for learning, I guess. Like uh, my teacher, Charles Wolf, uh, used to say, you know, when you're gluing up like a center seam, like get glue on your shoes. Like now is not the time <laughs> to be precise. Just everywhere. Go, go, go. I guess that's good for practicing. But when I was thinking about the glue that I wanted to use, um, I wanted something that was a little more user-friendly. I mean, hide glue is never like easy to work with, but we don't have to make it harder on ourselves. So anyway, should I talk about uh, buying 50 pounds of glue? Yeah. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's this company in uh, North America that is called Milligan and Higgins, and they started making glue back in uh, 1886, 18-something like that. And um, they're the last company in North America actually still making hide glue in this way. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of people are using Milligan and Higgins glue in North America. They just don't know it because a whole mm -hmm. bunch of other people buy it and resell it. Uh, the monocle glue was Milligan and Higgins, right? Um, but they have a minimum order of 50 pounds um, to even, you know, get, get your foot in the door. Um, which is a lot of glue. That's yeah. uh, like two five-gallon buckets full of glue. That's about 50 pounds, right? That's an industrial accident waiting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. So, so I called up Milligan and Higgins, and I talked to them, and um, there's a guy there, uh, the technical expert, Jay, who's just super nice, and he and I have had some good conversations talking about glue. And uh, he sent me a bunch of samples of different gram weights, right? I got 192, I got 251, I got 315. Um, and what I did was I, I tested them out to try and see what was most applicable in my situation. Um, what ends up happening with some of the higher gram strengths glues is that um, to really sort of make them more usable, people add more water, right? Mm -hmm. And then that extends the open time a little bit because it um, keeps it warmer a little longer and it helps it to, um, to not gel quite as quickly. But then you actually have, you might end up with fewer actual glue molecules in the yeah. joint. So in, in, I came to the conclusion anyway that it would be better to have more shorter glue molecules in a, a good joint rather than fewer, stronger molecules. So, um, so anyway, I did some tests, like very carefully measuring out, you know, just the exact same ratios of glue, whatever, to make it a fair test, right? And uh, I did some break tests, and I figured out that the 192 was like a really nice balance of like mm -hmm. strength and workability. It's got a nice open time, um, but it was also um, just as strong in my tests as the 251. Mm -hmm. And then the 251 had a much shorter working time, and the 315 was just, again, it was just kind of kind of ridiculous. I don't want I, I don't need that stress in my life, you know, trying to glue up a cello center seam with 315 glue. I mean, as it is when I glue up a cello center seam, I like heat the shop up to 95 degrees. Yeah. I'm trying to get every second I can. And it's like, if the glue, if it's just as strong, I like, I, I'm just as happy to use a slightly, you know, weaker gram strength glue. Um, so anyway, so I bought 50 pounds and I've got glue for the rest of my life. The other thing that I really like about that is that I now have my batch of glue. Even the the differences between like batches yeah. of 192 is is enough that you can like notice a difference in the feel. So like now I'm just like it's my glue. I'm used to it. I know how much to mix and I know how long it, it gels and like it's just like all right, check. That is super important. That is super super important. Uh, one of the things that the best pieces of advice that was ever given to me is once you find a product that you like, if you can buy a lifetime supply, do it seriously. Because not only is, is there the chance that you might not ever be able to buy that again, but you learn how to use that exact thing. Mm -hmm. And that's, you, you know, what's the difference between 
a chisel and and glue well there's, a, there's obviously there's a lot but at the end of the day they're both tools and knowing how to use that tool so i, I totally feel you on buying 50 pounds i've just not been that crazy yet but one of these days one of these days <laughs> and also on a per pound basis it's very affordable very affordable. Oh, sure. sure yeah i think they charge me for shipping though so sure what are you gonna do for pretty much just any repair you're a proponent of 192 i mean i think there are probably some aspects um particularly with repair where you might want to use a different different grade of glue and i have to apologize i you're not you don't primarily do repairs you primarily do making so i I got to clarify. Yeah, mostly I do making. And this glue yeah. is is fine for everything I do mm-hmm. in making, except um, I do have a weaker glue. It's a one third. So my hide glue is 192 high clarity, which just means that it's extra, extra filtered, right? Um, it looks pretty clear. You can, you can mm. like, um, there's, it doesn't look like there's lots of impurities and things in it when you mix it up. I also have some 135 regular clarity, which is kind of muddy. You can't see through Mm. it. Um, It smells a little worse. It's got some of that, you know, oils and fats and things that all glue has to some extent in it. And that's what makes it a little bit weaker, the shorter molecules, obviously. Um, And that's what I use for gluing on tops, uh, because that's a joint Mm. where uh, my 192 is just too strong for it. I even like I, I experimented with watering it way, way, way down, and it still was too strong. So the the 135 regular clarity is what I use uh, for gluing tops on. And that's been that's been really good for me. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I I love it. I wish we all did that for, for future repair people. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly in my own making, I try and make it um, as as easy on myself as possible to pop the top if I want to do any adjusting, if I want to do some regraduation, whatever. Like, I want to take away any of those barriers because they always sound better after you've messed with them a little bit. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it'd be so hard to take off the top. Wait a minute. No, let's just make it easy. Why, yeah. why be hard on yourself? So M&H 192 for a long time has been, I'll say, the gold standard. That's the one that, at least it was amongst a, a lot of the restorer folks as far as if you're going to go invest in glue, 192 is the one to get the high clarity stuff. Nowadays, a lot of my friends are using some, well, they can't make anything easy. You know, it's, it's not a great product unless you, need, you, you know somebody who can mule it to you from Japan. Uh, so a, a lot of a lot of my friends are using uh, Amazon 3B, and it's uh, it's Japanese hide glue made from Wagyu beef, which just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> There's something about massaging cattle. Yeah, yeah. So hide glue sounds good though, doesn't it? It does. It does. So the thing with a, a lot of of glues that uh, you, you know restorers use is we're always looking for that longer open time, and a lot of people have found that this. This Amazon gives a much longer working time with without any mm, without any drawbacks as far as strength goes, and you know I think Michael and I we touched on this a little bit in our conversations that there might be something to how the glue is processed and made, you know, depending on where it's made and what part of the world that's going to influence the bond strength of that glue or the working time of that glue. So. Again, it's it's get a product, learn how to use it. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. There are all these. Um, so, so um, collagen's the main the main thing in glue, right? Like in in all of the like skin glues, fish skin glue, bone glue, uh, you know, whatever you want to make glue out of, it's basically collagen. But there are 
different trace proteins that are also uh, coming from the skin or the or the bones. You know, keratin, elastin, mucin, chondrin, and all of those things in different ratios will give the glue a different feel. So, mm. um, so I would buy that, you know, Wagyu beef with their, uh, you know, yogurt massages and whatever they need to do is like, uh, uh, you know, maybe that's creating some different proteins in the hide. Maybe. And if you're extremely careful in how you extract things, I bet you'll get a different result than, you know, brewing up, you know, the scraps of, of, uh, in, in huge 5,000 gallon vats, uh, you know, I, I would buy that. Yeah, Totally. And now I would like to shift toward a proper way to store the glue. Uh, I'd like to explore with you guys any common mistakes that luthiers make in preparation and storage. Uh, is it okay to use a mini crock pot for heating glue? Is it okay to refrigerate it when you're not using it? You guys fill me in. Well, so, um, I mean, I can tell you what I do. Um, and I can tell you a little bit about what I've, what I've learned. Um, so hide glue in its dry form stores almost indefinitely. We, we, we can't say indefinitely for sure, but a very, very long time. Um, they've still found some hide glue in uh, Egyptian tombs that is still good. So certainly long enough for my purposes. Um, yeah. <laughs> when you reconstitute it, um, you're making a, uh, a gelatin, right? A, a solution that uh, bacteria and mold and things love to, love to eat, love to grow on. So whatever you can do to inhibit that is good. Um, if you've got mold in your glue, that's, that's a problem. Um, I mean, and if it smells bad, that's also a problem, right? So but if, what if you, it's a little piece of mold and you just cut it off the top? Can we use that glue? See, now this is why this is why I have fifty pounds of glue, so that I don't even need to ask that question. I just throw it all away and I make a new batch. And uh, dang it, yeah, okay. I, I, I'm basically uh, so. I mean, hide glue is really, really strong, and I think that it's really easy to make hide glue that is way, way, way stronger than the wood. Right? Like, so I think there's a certain point where it just doesn't matter anymore. But glue is cheap and glue is easy to make yeah. for us. And so I just, if I have any doubts, I just throw it away. You know, if I, if I reheat it too many times, I just throw it away. It's, it's, you know, we can compost mm -hmm. it actually, cause it's a, it's a natural, natural thing. So you ought to compost it. But, um, but, but anyway, that so. That never occurred to me. That's awesome. Yeah. So here's what I do to keep myself, uh, in fresh glue all the time is I, uh, I measure out my, my, uh, glue and, and my water. I always use distilled water. And I, I weigh it all so that I can have a same the same ratio because I've gotten to know my glue and I know that I need X amount of water and X amount of glue and that does well. And so you, you add cold water to the glue and let it soak. You might think that you want to add hot water because it'll soak in faster, but it actually it actually takes longer because the hot water kind of like melts the outside of the little glue granules and then it takes longer to sort of get in there. So cold water is the best. And... Um, once it's all swelled up, right, and the water is mostly gone, um, then I heat it very carefully in a water bath. Um, I found that one of my best uh, best investments in the glue is uh, I got this little like temperature probe from uh, Amazon. It's called like Inkbird, and it just turns my hot plate on and off, and it stops it when the water gets to the certain temperature, and then it turns it back on when it falls, and it makes it really easy to keep the glue at a nice, consistent temperature. 
Um, I also got a, a cheap infrared thermometer, which makes it really easy to measure tiny quantities of glue. It's hard to measure that with like a meat thermometer or whatever. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work very well. Um, but the infrared thermometer is great and you can just kind of kind of tell what's going on easily. But anyway, so I, I make it also like... It looks really cool to shoot that into yes, the glue. Yes, definitely. <laughs> my, son, my son loves the laser for sure. Um, so... So anyway, I make like a, a something about like two cups of glue at a time, a volume, and then I, I heat it up and then I let it uh, to uh, 145 degrees until it's all nicely combined and it's made this gelatin. And then I cool it down and I put that in the fridge and that jar in the fridge seems to last me about six to eight weeks um, just in my fridge. And then every time I need glue, I just go and I scoop out like a tablespoon or two of glue. I put it in my little Pyrex shot glass and I put that uh, in the water bath and, uh, and I always have fresh glue. And then, you know, maybe I'll reheat that um, shot glass like once or twice. But then after that, I just go and go and get some fresh glue. And I always mix up my glue, just maybe just a tad thick, because it's super easy to like thin it down once it's in the glue pot, if you need thinner glue, but it's harder to make it thicker. It takes a long time. Um, I was told by, um, by Jay at Milligan and Higgins that basically you want to keep your glue at a nice consistent temperature, about 140 to 145 degrees. When you get up above um, 150 degrees, what happens is, um, <laughs> I like to think of it like this, the, the proteins, um, they, they, uh, when they get hot, right? What is, what is heat? Heat is like molecules moving around. When the proteins get too hot, they start to wiggle and they start to break down. Like literally they, they will break in half and become shorter molecules. So that's what weakens the glue. And that's why you shouldn't get it too hot. I like to think that the proteins don't like to dance. So they, uh, they, you need to keep them like, you know, just kind of chill, slow dancing. Right. Um, (laughs) but, um, Apparently this, apparently this takes hours. Like it's not like your glue, like instantly all of the proteins are gone. Once you get above 150 degrees, it's like, he's like, I think, I think that most people who like used to use high glue used to have like the glue pot, like, uh, you know, if furniture makers, they would have the glue pot just like on all day. Yeah. And I think there you could like cook your glue out of, out of, um, out of strength, you know, if you, if you cooked it all day, but the way we use hide glue, like even when you're gluing on a cello top or a cello back or something, the glue's like heated for like, I don't know, an hour or something two mm-hmm. two hours, maybe like it's fine. So you could probably, you could probably heat it at a significantly higher temperature and people do, I'm sure. And it probably doesn't affect the strength all that much, but you know, I like to be precise in my work. So I like to keep my glue at a certain temperature and know that it's about at that temperature. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention that is a safety thing that I do on my glue pot is I have the glue pot attached to a, a timer, like a bathroom fan timer, so I can never leave the glue pot on. We uh, we almost had a fire at my old shop one time because somebody would leave the glue pot on all night accidentally. Yeah, we and, had one uh, of those. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not a it's not a good thing to come back in the morning too, for sure. So, um, yeah, my my I have to turn on my timer every hour to keep my glue pot going. That's really smart. We had a little sign of uh, Smokey the Bear below the glue pot glue pot that said, "Only you can prevent glue pot fires." <laughs> <laughs> I never realized that could be a risk. A fire. I mean, I've definitely we've definitely done it at the shop where. Um, it's happened once or twice. We come back the next day and the water is evaporated. So when, when you're using a, like a hot plate or a little, little glue stove, that's much more of a problem than, you know, if you're using like a hold heat glue pot or a baby bottle warmer or a crock pot. Uh, so you know, the, the, the things like hold heats, um, 
it'd be pretty tough to have a fire with one of those. I know I've heard stories of people who have left those on for weeks at a time accidentally and things have been fine because they're okay. That's a relief <laughs> weeks at a time. Whoops. Yeah. Well, they, they left and came back and oops, <laughs> I left the glue pot on, which is something I will get up in the middle of the night and go to my shop and make sure that the thing's turned off because I'm that neurotic about it. For sure. The other thing that came out after I made my little analog bathroom fan outlet combo for my glue pot is now they have these these tiny um, smart plug outlet yeah. things yep. that you can turn on and off with your smartphone or, mm-hmm. or set to go off after an hour. And those are nice for, um, I know one maker who has that in his shop and he can check whether or not the glue pot is on from his house, right? Nice. Yeah, I need to, uh, my shop does not have Wi-Fi in it yet after 11 years I, I've just not done it. It's I've got so many other things. The phone works out there, and I listen to CDs. So um, I I, I need to do it. That's why I, I record Omo in a spare bedroom, not in my shop. So I feel you. I, I need to get one of those. I just haven't. Yeah, it's embarrassing. Well, fewer distractions, I'm sure. No. <laughs> no, everybody's calling you. <laughs> so, so I think it's interesting to note that. Yeah, you know, we're, you know, we're not the big buyers of, of glue substances, like factories, industry that makes envelopes, you know, they are huge consumers of, of glue and gelatin. And we are, however, I think one of the things that's made high glue available for the rest of the woodworking community, probably throughout the 20th century. Like I, I, uh, I was very fortunate to meet Peter Follinsby. If you don't know who he is, you should look him up. He's, um, He's kind of like an archaeologist of woodworking. He recreates 16th and 17th century carved wooden chests. And for a while, he was the joiner at the Plymouth Plantation in Massachusetts. And I had read his book, How to Make a Joint Stool from a Tree. And I was like, I'm jazzed to meet this guy. And I, I go into Plymouth Plantation and I go into the 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 woodworking area and there's nobody else there. And there's Peter Follinsby with his giant gray beard. And I'm expected to see him working at this bench with some awesome looking wooden planes. And he's got a Tormek in front of him. <laughs> and he says, yeah, you know, everybody expects to not see this power tool. And it's like, yeah, it's okay, dude. It's okay. I've got one of those. And we started talking about, you know, what I do and what he does. And he says, you know, all of us woodworkers really should owe the violin community a kind of a debt of gratitude because for a long time, you were the only small time users of high glue that were purchasing it. And now it's kind of become a thing in the cabinet making community. Those guys are buying high glue. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's one of those things that for a lot of the 20th century, people went and they, they had flings and romances with other glues. And now a lot of the high-end woodworking folk are coming back to high glue. So anyway, what's up with urea? That's the next thing on Rosie's <laughs> list. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I personally have never used urea in- I've never uh, used it either. Yeah, but I hear about it. It's a thing. Um, it is a thing. Urea is, uh, it's a it's a nitrogen-based salt, right? And mm-hmm. um, it's it's in P, obviously, right? Uh-huh. Um and uh, you can you can purify that. You can get that salt, and you can add it to glue. And what that does is the um, the urea uh, inhibits some of that electrochemical attraction between the molecules, so it stops them from gelling, right? 
Um, and it also, because it's a salt, it's hydrophilic, so it loves water. So it holds on to the water in the glue, and that keeps it from evaporating, which is, you know, those are the two ways that hide glue dries. So what you can get if you add um, a small amount of a urea to hide glue is you can get liquid hide glue, hide glue that's liquid at room temperature rather than having to be hot to be liquid. And, and we're referring um, to the brown, the stuff in the brown bottle, right? That Exactly. Yeah, the I was wondering. High glue, the old brown glue, you know. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I suppose that's appealing for, um, you know, folks who need to glue up larger pieces, right? Like veneers and stuff. Um, for us, I think we're working on a small enough scale that it's not as big a deal. We just kind of learned to work with the hot hide glue um, and, you know, why degrade the strength if you don't have to. But it sounds convenient, right? Um, and apparently um, it can... Uh, uh, your glue can mold and things if you leave it in a liquid state longer. So they always add uh, preservatives and whatnot to the, to the commercial liquid hide glues. So, um, but yeah, it's an interesting experiment, right? Yeah. I, sure. I have a follow-up for somebody out there who they're working in a shop that does a lot of, uh, you know, just inexpensive uh, rental instruments what would be your argument for them going with the the pure high glue versus just reaching for the bottle they got for Home Depot? Why should they do that? The bottle of hide glue from Home why, Depot or why, the bottle of PVA glue? <laughs> why, why should they? <laughs> what, what Home Depot are you shopping yeah. at where you can yeah. find liquid hide glue? Jeez, Rosie. They got yeah, high-end the Home Depots. The tight bond hide glue, the brown bottle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what would be an argument in favor of using the classic stuff versus the bottle glue if, you know, your stuff is in all that high end that you're working with? Can I answer this? Yeah. Okay. So uh, the problem with the bottle stuff is is it's not very consistent as far as it either is it becomes so tenacious that you can't get the joint back apart or the opposite end of things. It's either so, I won't say weak, but that joint tends to fail. They have that stuff pumped up with about 30% urea and formaldehyde. So that much urea, while I'll say 5% by weight really doesn't change the strength. When you, when you bump it up to 30%, that starts to do some funky things. Mm -hmm. Also, they have formaldehyde in there, which is going to help keep it uh, in a liquid state that formaldehyde also has a really interesting property when you start exposing it to high glue is it makes high glue less water soluble or insoluble by water. Interesting. So you've got this stuff that it may sound like it's a shortcut. However, man, you can buy high glue kits from international violin from Bjorn mm-hmm. Industries from Stumac. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can buy high glue kits anywhere. So I think yeah. the, the 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 benefit of the ease of that of the bottle just isn't worth it. Even, yeah. even the most cooked out hot high glue that's been sitting in the pot for like three weeks yeah. is still gonna be a better option. Absolutely. Than the stuff in it's the bottle. A, the bottle also that stuff tends to be really thick. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's hard to get the wood to really contact with the wood, which is what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you, if you don't get, um, if you don't get a nice tight joint, right? Like if you can't press it together because it's gelled up already, which 
the liquid hide glue sort of already is kind of half gelled, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. it's so so thick. Um, I think that's going to inhibit a really nice uh, mechanical bond, right? Like not just a molecular right. adhesion, right. but the actual mechanical adhesion of the molecules to the wood to each other, right? Right. Michael, is there anything else you'd like to add that we didn't cover? I think that just about covers it. Yeah, thank you. This has been super fascinating and really fun. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. Michael, I hope you'll come back someday. This was fun. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. I love this. You seem like you've got a lot more to talk about than just glue, but uh, focusing in on this has been really fun. And it was a good education for me just to learn about uh, the different gram strengths and where they're sourced. And I like hearing about your process. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you, sponsors and supporters on Patreon. This project pays for itself because of your support, and we are so appreciative. And we'd love you to join us next month. Brandon Godman and I will cover Sukomogami. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Is that tentacle porn? Yes. This is the Japanese folklore that tools acquire a spirit. So, same thing. Do inanimate objects become more alive over time as they are used? Do you have something to contribute on this topic? A personal story? Even if it's just a little snippet of a story? Reach out to us on Instagram or email us at omopod.com. Coming up in our coda, we have got the ultimate glue test with MJ Kwan. Thanks, guys. Thank you. This is this is this is this is this is this is Dakota. Welcome back, everybody. I have got MJ Kwan with me here to discuss a couple things. Hi, MJ. Hi. You're coming at us from New York, right? Yes, Brooklyn. And you, at some point, were a Texan. Is that correct? Oh yeah, I was born and raised in Austin. Okay, great. All right, good. Well, uh, you are the pioneer of a few things. What I've gathered from MJ is you you like to do, you like to gather a lot of data and share this with the world. And one of the things you did is you did the ultimate glue test, which is the number one search result. If you look on YouTube for the ultimate glue test, uh, she and the other members of the Chicago school uh, at the time did an experiment with how you mix your glue. Cause we haven't discussed that yet. Have we? Yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about doing the ultimate glue test. Uh, yeah. So we got, um, I, I mixed up like eight jars of glue using the school glue, which is some like 192 gram strength. So it was all the same glue. And, um, and then we just mixed some super watery and some like super thick and then glued uh, some like Home Depot wood together and and then broke them all in a vice and nice uh, and then we just inspected the joints afterwards. Lovely. So you'd started with about um, a one to three ratio, one being the glue, three being the water yeah. and then went to a thickness of about a one to one ratio at the end. Yeah, and that's that's visually. So, like, actually, the volume of water was, uh, or like the mass of the water was like way more. Yeah, and uh, you guys took bets on if the <laughs> joint would fail or not. <laughs> we were doing hypotheses. Hypotheses, yes. of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really like this test 
because it answers the question, if you want the joint to fail, how do you want it to fail? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So like, you know, everybody, anybody who's had to take a top off an instrument and end up with a ton of little splinters, um, mm-hmm. you can you can kind of gather from this uh, test, like how, how thin you should be mixing your glue for gluing a top on. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, you don't want your center joints to fail and things like that. So um, mm-hmm. then you can gather from the test that you should mix it much more thick. Yeah, thick. <laughs> yeah. Everybody go check it out. It's a it's a great experiment. Uh, just if you really want to think through, okay, how do I want this joint to be? If it's going to break, how do I want it to break? Right. And I definitely recommend um, trying it with your own glue and in your own conditions and with whatever, you know, with your own material so that, yeah, just don't, don't just do whatever I say. Do it. Yeah. That's a good point where you are is going to be different temperature, different humidity, possibly most likely a different batch of glue, even if it comes from Milligan and Higgins like you used. And so everybody needs to become familiar with their own glue. That's a good point. Well, thank you for providing that for the world. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was so Uh, fun to make. (laughs) Good, good. It's fun to break them all. (laughs) Yeah. Get the anger out. (laughs) (laughs) So another thing that you have collected data on and shared with the world, uh, you helped compile the Luthier Income Survey in which people self-reported things about their location and their pay rate in this job. Uh, What are some things you discovered? Um, Well, it was interesting because like, I guess there are a few parts of the, of the survey, which included just kind of collecting like information that might influence your income. So location and your, um, uh, what kind of experience you have, how much experience, age, demographic, uh, all kinds of info. Um, And just, we haven't gotten to really study in depth a lot of those things yet. We need more data, but um, but the patterns that are starting to arise are interesting. They're super interesting. We also got to see the effects of the pandemic since we collected three years of data and just see how, how different um, like employment types bounced back or didn't. Um, and um, yeah, it was, it's interesting. Yeah, I did notice that uh, the I, I don't recall if it was the mean or the median, but as far as pay rates in 2021, we're slightly below where we were in 2019. We're almost back to where we were before, but the effects are still lingering. Right, right. Um, I did think it was interesting because you had people record how they, um, their, their education for this field. Only 56% went to a full-time luthiery school. Uh, the rest were apprenticed, trained at a job, went to a workshop, or were self-taught. Mm-hmm. Um, that was news to me. Um, and then by a small margin, the majority of us are self-employed, which that, that tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, do you want to mention what the average salaries are currently? Yeah. So um, we have sort of like a an unadjusted number for like the whole world. We had everybody... Um, enter their income in USD. And so, um, yeah, I guess like for the, for, for what we have so far of 2021, 
the average income was um, 53, just under $54,000. Um, and then the median was 40,000. Uh, and this is across 116 responses. Mm -hmm. um, hourly, that comes out to like 28.67 an hour, and then 24.43 uh, as the median. So, um, yeah. Thank you so much, because I, I think that taking the mystery out of it is super helpful to people coming into the industry, people um, wanting to advocate for themselves to um, get better pay, mm -hmm. um, no matter what gender. So I appreciate the effort that you've put into this very much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if other people want to report and add to your data, where can they go? Um, well, there, I can provide a link. Maybe oh, okay. can, you, can you post it in your, your yeah. liner notes? Um, so there'll be a link um, that you can find and, uh, and we'll be collecting through tax season um, so that we can get more data. And uh, one really important thing, you're entering your location information and some of your demographic information is optional, but the, if you can enter your location data, it's really, really helpful to see how these things adjust out per location. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so if you can do it, then go for it. Okay. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. Thanks, everybody. Please uh, help contribute to this so that we can gather more awareness of how we're getting paid. I love it. Thank you, MJ. Thank you for the work you do that's outside of your daily job that uh, helps everybody else out. We really appreciate you. No problem. <laughs> Super fun. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Uh, keep your fingers clean so they don't get too sticky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bye. OMA was an all-Luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.